welcome to this special episode of Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Between February 11th and April 1st, 2022, the Foundation for Middle East Peace and the Middle East Institute held our 2022 Congressional Briefing Series entitled Israel and Palestine, Hot Topics in Congress. This eight-part series was co-convened and co-moderated by MEI's Khaled El-Gindi and myself, Lara Friedman, President of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. It featured an array of Palestinian and Israeli voices weighing in on some of the most pressing and timely Israel-Palestine related issues that Congress faces today. The series was held virtually and participation was open exclusively to members of Congress and congressional staff. However, given the importance both of the issues dealt with in this series and of the expertise featured on each panel, we decided to make the full series available to the public. You can listen to the podcast here and you can find the webinars on our website www.fmep.org. Now sit back and enjoy the podcast. Welcome. Good morning. Uh, my name is Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm very happy, along with my colleague Khaled Al-Gindi, the director of Middle East Institute's program on Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli affairs. Happy to welcome you to today's webinar, which is the eighth and last session of our congressional briefing series, Israel and Palestine, Hot Topics in Congress. Thanks, Laura. Uh, today's session is called A New Era in Palestinian Unity, question uh, mark. And to help us better understand this uh, very hot topic, we've assembled a, a really exciting uh, and incredibly um, uh, amazing uh, group of panelists. Um, I'm going to list them here in alph alphabetical order. First, we have uh, Tarek Bakoni, who is president of the board of Ashabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network which is a virtual think tank uh, and author of Hamas Contained the Rise and Pacification of Palestinian Resistance by Stanford University Press in uh, 2018. Next, we have Yara Hawari, uh, who is uh, also at Shabaka as a senior analyst uh, and also um, an honorary research fellow at the University of Exeter. Uh, third, we have uh, Lana Tatur, who is a lecturer in development at the School of Social Sciences at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. So you can read our panelists' full bios on the MEI and FMEP websites. Um, our colleagues are putting links into the chat box right now with that. Also watch the chat box for their Twitter handles and links to articles and other resources relevant to today's discussion. And if you miss anything in the chat box, don't worry. These materials will be posted on the web page for this series. Um, so the format for the session, like all the other sessions, is a moderated Q&A that's going to be led by myself and Khaled. Um, we have some basic questions to get things started. Um, we very much want your questions. If you have questions, put them in the Q&A box, not the chat box. And of course, if you have any issues, you can put those in the chat box and the people behind the scenes who are brilliantly making this happen uh, will make sure that those are taken care of. So with that, let's begin. Great, so, uh, so it's no secret that Palestinians today are deeply fragmented politically and geographically, certainly, but also socially uh, and spatially. Um, there is, of course, the classic division between Palestinians on the outside, Palestinians in the diaspora, uh, and those inside, uh, inside the homeland, whether it is uh, in Israel, as citizens of Israel, or in the occupied territories. Yet another division 
of, of Palestinians in, in, a, in a demographic and political sense. Um, even within the occupied territories of the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, Palestinians in, in these areas live under distinct legal, administrative, and political regimes. Then, of course, we have the political uh, geographic split between uh, Hamas in Gaza and the Fatah-dominated Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. Part of this fragmentation is a result of deliberate Israeli policy, the classic divide and conquer approach adopted by all colonial powers. Um, part of it is also self-inflicted. Hamas and Fatah have their own bitter rivalry going back to the 1990s and could at least theoretically choose to prioritize the national interest over their partisan uh, or parochial needs, but choose not to. While attempts to reach an accommodation between Fatah and Hamas at, a, at the political level have repeatedly failed, most recently uh, the reconciliation agreement signed in late 2020 um, that were supposed to produce elections last year in the spring and summer of last year, um, Palestinian grassroots activists and civil society are increasingly focused on challenging that fragmentation, both in terms of connections across the Green Line, the 1967 uh, border, uh, and grassroots engagement and connections around the world. We saw signs of this last May when in the midst of the Gaza war that was triggered by the unrest surrounding pending evictions of several Palestinian families from their homes in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of East Jerusalem, we saw an unprecedented mobilization, not just of Palestinians in the occupied territories, but also of Palestinian citizens in Israel in places like uh, Lid, uh, Akka, and other so-called mixed cities, a moment that Palestinians on both sides of the Green Line have dubbed the unity intifada. So thanks, Khaled, for that great scene setter. Um, so Yara, we want to start with you, and, and we want to set the scene even further. So if you could talk about what happened last May, which Khaled has referenced, and, and how was it different from previous mobilizations that we've seen? Um, what motivated Palestinians on both sides of the Green Line to come out at that time? And, and if you can characterize what the motivations were and, and to the extent that these motivations were the same or different across the various divides that Khaled has already spelled out. Thanks for, for asking that, that an important question, Laura. In, in May 2021, what we saw was a collective Palestinian uprising against uh, Israeli settler colonialism. Uh, we know Sheikh Sharral was the, the spark of this uprising, Sheikh Sharral being the Palestinian neighborhood in Jerusalem who, face, who continues to face uh, imminent ethnic cleansing. Um, and this, this small neighborhood attracted both you know massive local participation um, in this uprising but also massive international attention and I think one of the reasons for, for this was because Sheikh Sharrah really encapsulates the Palestinian experience of decades of forced displacement of land theft of incarceration of brutalization of Palestinian bodies so in other words I think you know, Palestinians all over colonized Palestine saw in Sheikh Jarrah their own experiences and rose up in, in shared struggle. Um, and, and over the, you know, over the, the weeks that followed this initial spark, Palestinians across uh, colonized Palestine took part in demonstrations, different types of resistant activities, including Palestinians in the, the 48 territories, uh, 
um, the Palestinian citizens of Israel in, in cities like Haifa, in Yaffa, Lid. Uh, and these protests uh, across the board were met uh, with, uh, you know, very similar tactics of, of repression and violence from Israeli regime forces. Uh, there were also several days of protest at the Al-Aqsanas compound, and these were also met with um, violent repression from, from the Israeli regime forces. But the, the worst violence that we saw, of course, was when Israel started the 10-day uh, heavy bombardment of Gaza, which ultimately killed uh, 250 Palestinians, including 66 children. Um, now, as Gaza was under attack, um, the grassroots mobilization continued. Um, and I think one of the most important events that happened during this period was on May 18th, when Palestinians called for a general strike in and arguably one of the biggest shows of collective unity in years. And that the strike was organized in response to the attacks on Gaza, uh, but also the, the struggle on the streets of, of Jerusalem. And it was a it was a particularly important activity for or, or form of resistance for Palestinians with Israeli citizenship who were reiterating yet again their shared struggle with Palestinians in Gaza. Um, uh, and Jerusalem. And, and for Palestinian citizens of Israel, it wasn't just a show of solidarity, it was actually a very effective uh, tactic of disruption um, of the Israeli economy. The Palestinian citizens of Israel are 20%, uh, more or less, of the, uh, the total population. They constitute a massive part of the, the workforce. Just to give you an idea, 50% of, of pharmacists within the Israeli regime are, are Palestinian. 20 around 25% of the nurses are also Palestinian. And the entire construction sector is pretty much Palestinian. 99% you know, of Israel's construction sector is made up of Palestinian workers, many of them who are actually from the West Bank, um, who cross uh, without permits and are treated uh, appallingly so. Uh, and so on that day of the general strike, the, construct the Israeli construction sector was completely put on hold. Um, and this was you know, an incredibly, uh, effective tactic, but also an incredibly uh, an incredible show uh, of unity. And and during these weeks, you know, it wasn't surprising for Palestinians, but it was particularly surprising for I think foreign pundits and and the international media that these were people chanting the same chants, carrying the same slogans on their banners. Uh, Palestinians in the media were sharing the same talking points. There was this expression of unity. Um, that, the, that we are Palestinians uh, and that we are fighting a one regime, even though its manifestations of oppression might be different uh, in, in our different sort of uh, fragments. And this kind of unity, you know, for many Palestinians, especially young Palestinians, especially uh, what we call Gilles Oslo, the, the Oslo generation, this is something that, that they haven't seen for, for during their lifetime. Um, it was this, you know, revived collective narrative that asserted that Palestine is from the river to the sea, and that our collective struggles in Sheikh Jarrah, in Gaza, in Lid, in Haifa, wherever Palestinians live um, under the the oppressive uh, Israeli settler uh, colonial regime. Um, and I think, you know, this the the issue of fragmentation was 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 centre to. Uh, this 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 uprising. There was a very important document or statement that was released during the uprising called the the Dignity and Hope Manifesto of the Unity Intifada. And if I have time, I'd just like to read it, and I'll end and there because I think it really encapsulates 
um, the the spirit of this intifada. It said, we are one people and one society throughout Palestine. Zionist mobs forcefully displaced most of our people, stole our homes and demolished our villages. Zionism was determined to tear apart those who remained in Palestine, isolate us in sectional geographic areas and transform us into different and dispersed societies so that each group lives in a separate large prison. This is how Zionism controls us, disperses our political will and prevents us from a united struggle against the racist settler colonial system throughout Palestine. And this, you know, as the manifesto notes, has not happened, you know, inevitably. It's not random, this fragmentation. It's a deliberate policy of divide and, con and conquer implemented by the Israeli regime. And that's why I think the, the unity in Tafad of May 2021 was so significant because it really pushed the boundaries of what it means, of what is possible and what it means uh, to be Palestinian. Uh, thank you, Yara. Um, Tarek, I, I wanted to turn to you and, and ask you, um, uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on the events of last May, um, but also, uh, you know, over the last 11 years or so, we've seen a number of different Palestinian protest movements um, kind of emerge and then quickly uh, fizzle out. We had the 2011 protests in the wake of the, of the Arab Spring, demanding an end to the political division. Uh, we saw cost of living protests in, in 2012. Um, we've seen on and off protests in Jerusalem of, of various kinds and various moments, um, in, including uh, in, most recently in, in Sheikh Jarrah. There was the Great March of Return uh, in Gaza. Um, and then most recently, uh, the protests sparked last year by the murder of uh, Nizar Banat, a political dissident who was killed by Palestinian Authority uh, security forces. Um, so is the unity intifada part of this pattern of kind of this momentary eruption that quickly fizzles out? Does it have more, uh, is it gaining more traction? Um, and if so, how? Um, how are people building on this, this manifesto that, that Yara quoted for us? Um, and, and is this kind of the wave of the future? Is this going to reshape the Palestinian national movement, which you know up until now has been focused on on the occupied territories almost exclusively. Thank you, Khaled and Lara, for for having me, and thank you, Yara, for your opening statement and for setting the scene for us. I, I, I uh, uh, it's uh, wonderful to follow from from that opening because I'm in agreement with everything that Yara has said. And now I can build on that uh, a bit more. Uh, when we think about all these different protests, it's very important to bear in mind the context that Yara has uh, painted for us about fragmentation and about Palestinians being uh, imprisoned in different locales. What that means, what that fragmentation means is that often the forms of Palestinian protest and mobilization take different specific challenges in, in, in terms of the impetus for mobilization. So for example, uh, the protests that erupted after the murder of Nizar Banat at the hands of the PA cannot be separated from uh, the Palestinian struggle and mobilization for dignity between the river and the sea. The PA is a subcontractor to Israeli apartheid and uh, their security coordination, the entrenchment of the security coordination with Israel manifests in the oppression of Palestinians in the West Bank. It manifests in 
the oppression of Palestinians and the prevention of Palestinians from mobilization in the West Bank. The fact that uh, uh, an activist like Nizar Banat is uh, murdered because of his outspokenness against uh, the PA and against this reality of what the PA is cannot be separated then from the fact that this is also a protest against the Israeli uh, apartheid regime writ large. Uh, similarly, if we're thinking about cost of living protests, part of the reason that the uh, economy in the West Bank and the, and the OPT generally suffers is because of Israeli restrictions on freedom of movement, uh, because of Israeli uh, uh, prevention of Palestinians having control over their own national borders, their imports and exports. Gaza's economic crisis is a manufactured crisis. Uh, it's a crisis that is the result of uh, a blockade that is put in place to restrict all forms of uh, movement of, of goods and people. So I would caution uh, against sort of seeing these protests as protests uh, about different issues. The challenges manifest differently in each of these different locales, but ultimately, uh, whether it's economic impoverishment or uh, security coordination and imprisonment and uh, murder of activists, or it's uh, opp uh, oppression specifically and directly by the Israeli occupation forces, all of these protests are protests that are uh, driven by Palestinians for uh, hope and dignity and self-determination from the river to the sea. Now, if we think about that context, uh, it still then follows that uh, the Unity Intifada, as Yara said, was a particular uh, kind of intervention. It was one, uh, I wouldn't go as far as saying it was unprecedented because there has been in the past mobilizations across historic Palestine by Palestinians against Zionist settler colonialism before even the establishment of the state of Israel. But it was significant in the recent history uh, because it reignited uh, this uh, uh, recognition by the international community, by external onlookers, but also by Palestinians who had bought into the partitionist agenda and into the Oslo agenda, that actually the Palestinians are a single people facing a single regime of oppression. And that moment uh, in which uh, uh, the unity intifada erupted, uh, for me, and I'll, I'll come to your question about well, where are we going from here, but for me, the biggest success of the unity intifada is that uh, intervention in the consciousness of Palestinians and in the consciousness of people uh, engaging uh, in the quest for Palestinian rights, uh, that we are moving out of a three-decade uh, process in which for all the reasons that we can talk about historically, we've come and many have come to see Israel-Palestine as something that can be partitioned between two states to have a more honest uh, uh, recognition that Palestinians are facing a settler colonial movement in the entirety of their land. And the Unity Intifada, I think, was the spark uh, that has landed us in this new paradigm. Uh, and has landed us, and by us I mean uh, both Palestinians and their allies, as well as onlookers that are now finally understanding Palestine and the Palestinian struggle for liberation for what it is.
Now, where do we go from here is a big question, and I think it's very important. I think that we're in a moment of transition. Yara talked about the Gil Oslo, uh, and I think uh, that, that uh, Oslo generation obviously still exists. And I think we also exist in an international community that's invested in the status quo, uh, being uh, Israeli domination under the rubric of a two-state solution eventually being achieved. Uh, the Palestinian leadership, official leadership, unfortunately is also uh, invested in that status quo. So there's a lot of effort to maintain the idea that uh, we should exist in a partition paradigm, that the, the land of historic Palestine must one day be partitioned. Uh, having And we saw that uh, past uh, or after the Unity Intifada, a huge effort was uh, put forward in trying to put that eruption uh, back into its box, whether it's the massive waves of arrest of Palestinians in uh, 48 in Israel or uh, the, the assassination of Nizar Banat and the, uh, the imprisonment of activists in the West Bank. So a lot of effort is going into maintaining us in that partitionist paradigm. But where we go from here, I think, is more and more uh, uh, mobilization and convergence uh, towards the reality, which is that we are in a non-partitioned reality, in a one-state reality, and Palestinians are demanding their rights uh, in a decolonized Palestine from the river to the sea. I think we'll see more eruptions and mobilization by Palestinians and by their allies internationally uh, as, as they move uh, the struggle in this direction. Thank you, Tana, and thank you, Yara. I, Lana, I want to come to you and ask you a similar question, but more focusing on the Palestinian citizens of Israel side of it. Um, so, you know, what made the unity, the word unity in unity and Safada really, I think, is a reflection of people saying, wow, both sides, the green line. And you've written um, about this sort of reawakening, I think is the word, of national consciousness of Palestinian citizens of Israel. Can you break this down for us more? And you know, why is this significant? Why now? And, and also your thoughts on what impact that reawakening has on the direction of the Palestinian national movement, which I think in most people's eyes really has been at home really in the West Bank and Gaza, the leadership, the traditional leadership of, of the Palestinians that are based in the occupied territories. Thank you for this question. And um, I think I'll start where, where Tarek um, alluded, which is, it, this is not new, right? The rising political uh, national consciousness uh, among Palestinians and certainly also among uh, um, what is known as Palestinian citizens of Israel, 48 Palestinians. Uh, we've seen that happen uh, uh, before where Palestinians across historic Palestine uh, were mobilizing in unison uh, and showing unity. Um, and we've seen that we just marked Land Day and Land Day is a significant day uh, in which Palestinians all across Palestines and in the Shatat in the diaspora uh, uh, mobilize uh, uh, together uh, to mark uh, settler colonization in Palestine, the relevance of land and resistance uh, for liberation and land. Um, we have the uh, October 2000, the second intifada, uh, where Palestinians, where 48ers also mobilized uh, as um, Palestinians in uh, Gaza and in the West Bank and elsewhere uh, were mobilizing. Um, so in many ways, this is 
um, this is not new and this political consciousness uh, and national commitment to the Palestinian struggle um, is something that has a long history to it. I think what is new in this political moment, however, is uh, what Yara also talked about, the uh, Oslo generation, Jid Oslo. And I think we see that also in 48 Palestine because uh, um, uh, the Oslo uh, Accords had significant impact on Palestinian political agenda uh, uh, within uh, uh, what is called Israel. Um, and there has been kind of this shift towards following the Oslo uh, Accords of Palestinians in Israel thinking about their political future more uh, um, grounded in kind of the Israeli political scene. Um, and I think as um, uh, the Second Intifada happened and the disillusion with the ability and with the willingness uh, to act within their Israeli citizenship and seeing that their political future, what Palestinians in, um, in 48 Palestine are saying now, and especially uh, uh, the new generation of activists, the Gil Oslo, is we are tying our political future, our liberation, uh, uh, to the liberation of Palestine. So we are setting our political struggle not within Israeli politics, but we wanna tie it to Palestinian politics for all its comple complexity. Um, and I think this is something we're also seeing uh, um, in the West Bank, this revival of liberationist agenda uh, across Palestine, but also one that involves, again, refugees um, and Palestinians uh, in the Shatad, in diaspora more broadly. And I think we are seeing one more thing, which is a real tension among 48 Palestinians with regard to their political future. So this is happening at the same time that we have uh, a Palestinian political party joining the coalition, the governing coalition in Israel, uh, United Arab List, Mansour uh, Abbas, who is part of the government. So what we are seeing, and we still have the uh, uh, joint list, which is the list that unites uh, other Palestinian political parties running to the Knesset. And what we are seeing is a real political contention a real political disagreement as to the future of 48 Palestinians and where the struggle uh, um, should go in the future, whether it should remain uh, within the Israeli political landscape, i.e. working for uh, um, a better uh, uh, status within the Israeli regime, or is it about transcending that citizenship, being part of an all Palestinian liberationist uh, a project? And I think this is the real contention that we're seeing. Um, and I think it's not very clear where we are heading in the future, but what is clear is that the new generation have said, we wanna be part of the Palestinian political scene and working on uniting Palestinians. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Lana. If I could, I'd like to stay with you for for a moment. Um, so some of these past protests that that we discussed um, uh, 
uh, were in some cases they're directed at the Palestinian Authority. Um, other cases they're directed at the Israeli occupation, and we've seen a kind of you know sometimes uh, the, sometimes it's both. Um, you know, one sort of bleeds into into the other. Um, so you know, it's sometimes it looks kind of like a Palestinian spring, and other times it looks like it's the third intifada. And I think this is, I mean, is this a reflection of, uh, of, of this kind of fragmentation? Um, what is the relationship between anti-PA protests on one hand and the broader struggle uh, against Israeli occupation? Um, and, and also in terms of overcoming this fragmentation, is, do you see, uh, does the sequence matter um, in terms of who the target is first? You know, for example, do Palestinians have to first address their internal dysfunction? Um, or can they do, you know, can they challenge the occupation and their political leadership at the same time? And, and if so, how, how would that work? Thank you, that's really an important question. I think as Tarek said before, it's really important to recognize what is the function of the formal political leadership, uh, especially the PA. Uh, and I think there is a consensus among Palestinian activists, among Palestinians generally, that they're an agent of Israeli settler colonization, that they are helping sustain uh, occupation and oppression and domination and the dispossession of Palestinians. Uh, so the consensus is they are an obstacle to Palestinian liberation. There is no way around it. Um, this is in relation to the PA, um, and I think all across Palestine there is, we are seeing some kind of disillusion with formal political uh, um, uh, leadership, um, even in Gaza where it's a bit more complicated with Hamas, where it's kind of dual, there is also uh, a commitment to Hamas, but at the same time also frustration with Hamas. And I think going to, uh, again, 48 Palestinians, Palestinians who are citizens of Israel, if there's one thing that um, um, the last um, 14, 15 years have shown, and certainly the unity intifada is the really big gap between the formal political leadership that is running to the Knesset, is part of the Knesset, and activists on the ground. And what we are seeing is really civil society uh, uh, mobilization that is putting a, putting an alternative to the formal political leadership, um, and this is significant. Whether Palestinians pri prioritize uh, who to fight, I don't think Palestinians have the luxury to prioritize. They're facing these two types of oppressive, and I'm not, you know, I'm not equalizing between them, but they're facing also internal uh, uh, oppression. Uh, by leadership that has a direction that is not matching what the people want. Uh, and this is all across Palestine. Uh, and they're also facing brutal settler colonization and the political leadership is an obstacle to the resistance. So this is why sometimes it looked like an Arab, you know, an Arab Spring, an Arab uprising. Uh, and sometimes it looked like an anti-colonial resistance because in the case of Palestine, both of them are tied. There is no anti-political resist resistance, anti-sorry, anti-colonial resistance without 
uh, uh, challenging and without resisting, for example, the Palestinian Authority. Um, and Palestinians, unfortunately, and it is it is a testament to the kind of political crisis that we are facing, uh, uh, have to fight two fronts at this particular political moment. Um, and they are doing so. I think one of the main questions is whether uh, um, the unity intifada and whether all the mobilization, and it's important to note also that the unity intifada didn't start out of nowhere. There has been a challenge to formal political leadership in Palestine for years now. There is grassroots mobilizing um, and the unity intifada really builds on the hard work of activists on the ground across uh, um, you know, from both sides of the green line and trying to overcome fragmentation for at least more than a decade in a very intense way. So what we are seeing is actually building on these efforts in the attempt to try and forge a different political future. How that will pan out is a different question, but this challenge hasn't started with the unity intifada and it's not gonna end with the unity intifada and we're constantly going to see a challenge uh, of both the political leadership, certainly mostly the Palestinian Authority at the same time that Palestinians are resisting settler colonialism in uh, all of historic Palestine. Thanks, Lena. And that's a great lead in to what I want to ask Yara about, which is sort of focusing back in for a moment on the occupied territories. And, and we've already gone over the ground of previous, um, the first Intifada, 87 to 93, second Intifada, 2000 to 2004. I mean, the unity Intifada, that term, which we're using right now is separate from the question that has been, you know, asked by by pundits and analysts now for years, you know, when is the third intifada? Why hasn't there been a third intifada really? And, and that's focusing just on, on the occupied territories. When you look at the situation on the ground for Palestinians in all of those areas, the situation today is arguably much worse than it was at the start of either of those two intifadas. So, so why hasn't there been a, an intifada just around that, a third intifada? Is it, is it you know, what, what are the circumstances that have led this, you know, to, to, to wait for perhaps the unity, the unity approach? Is that, a, is, is this about the weakening of the national movement? Is it about the discrediting of the, the Palestinian leadership, which acts as, again, people have said, the contractor for status quo occupation um, or, or some other combination of factors? I think it's useful here maybe for us to, to define what we mean when uh, we're talking about an intifada. What is an intifada? An Arabic intifada means uh, an uprising and um, this uprising, from my understanding, should be a collective one, an organized one, not sort of random actions taken uh, by, by individuals. Uh, and so for me, that's why last May, um, did fall under that category of an intifada. It was collective. Okay, it was smaller scale than perhaps the other intifadas, but it was a collective one across 
uh, colonized Palestine and it was organized. It wasn't just, uh, as Lana mentioned, you know, it, this didn't just happen randomly out of nowhere. This was as a result of, of uh, years, if not decades of organizing and trying to rebuild um, what the Oslo framework has so successfully uh, destroyed. And that's, you know, a feeling of community, a, a feeling of shared struggle. Um, and I think that's one of the, you know, the, 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 the worst consequences of Oslo, and there are, there are so many terrible ones, was the individualization of the Palestinian struggle, the onus on, you know, individual uh, success uh, and uh, individual achievements as a means to sort of liberate Palestine, which is also, of course, um, you know, adopting a very uh, neoliberal discourse. So I think last year does categorize as an intifada. I think, um, you know, the premise of that question, usually by pundits or, or journalists, you know, when are we gonna see another intifada? Is never usually a genuine one. It's really about, uh, you know, going for blood, you know, finding out when they're gonna, ne gonna ne next get the, the story. Um, um, and always asking when, you know, Palestinians are going to be violent and again, dismissing the fact that of course there is a, uh, slow and steady form of structural violence uh, inflicted on the Palestinian people by the Israeli regime. Um, now, switching gears uh, slightly and thinking about the sort of the, the Palestinian national movement and and what the, the last year meant for that, you know, the Palestinian national liberation struggle has been going through uh, a process of, of forced depoliticization even since before Oslo. And I think this certainly accelerated during the, the, the Oslo period. And um, it's been going through this downward um, spiral exasperated by, by neoliberalism and by various other factors. Um, but I think, you know, May showed us, May last year showed us that there is a possibility to, to create new political spaces and to organize outside of uh, the, the political institutions that have co-opted the Palestinian national struggle um, and to develop a new new type of politics. Um, certainly for me, May gave, uh, gave me a lot of hope uh, in our people that we can collectively organize, that we can once again be a community that, that cares about each other. Um, because um, that has been one of Israel's, you know, main um, main goals is to destroy Palestinian society from within, to, to, to disrupt us as a community, um, uh, not just geographically, but in terms of care. Um, so, yeah, I think I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah. Thanks, Yara. Um, so, uh, turning to you, Tarek. Uh, in the in the in shifting gears a, a little bit, in, in the past several days, we've seen a, a number of deadly shooting attacks uh, against Israeli civilians. Uh, these attacks, uh, which were carried out by both Palestinian citizens of Israel uh, and by at least one, you know, by Palestinians uh, in the West Bank, uh, would seem to underscore this theme that the Green Line really is increasingly less relevant. Um, uh, whether in security terms or in, in political terms or, or, or otherwise. Um, but they also, I think, harken back to a darker time when armed attacks became the norm uh, and unarmed forms, uh, forms of resistance were, were marginalized. I'm thinking back you know, almost exactly 20 years ago 
during the, the, the peak of the second intifada. So are we slipping back into this kind of, uh, of a dynamic where the, you know, even if nonviolent protesters, or I should say unarmed protesters are, are mobilized, they can easily be overshadowed by and, 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 and sort of undercut by just a handful of people who are prepared to use, um, you know, very uh, deadly forms of violence. Thank you, Khaled. It's a really important question, and I think we need to talk about a few uh, of, of the assumptions underpinning the question. And, and Yara began talking about that. Uh, the idea that the past 20 years have somehow been peaceful years or that there's been no violence is, uh, is, is not a fair representation of what's been happening on the ground. Uh, Palestinians are living under a structure of violence that is mundane and daily. So even outside the spectacular violence that we might see in attacks against Gaza or in Israeli incursions into the West Bank, Israeli violence has been relentless. Uh, daily, there are headlines of Palestinian children being killed, of Palestinians being shot, of Palestinians being brutalized. So when we think about the attacks that just happened, these are not attacks that somehow uh, rupture a peaceful uh, reality that exists in Palestine. These are attacks that are actually uh, a continuation or a response to a structure of violence that has been uh, cruel towards Palestinians uh, since its inception in 1948. So it's important to contextualize what these armed attacks are. And it's also important to think about what this green line is. The idea that the green line has acted as a separation is also a false assumption. The green line has never separated or partitioned the occupied territories from Israel. Israeli settlers and Israeli citizens move across the green line daily. Uh, the green line is porous and for them it is non-existent. So their, their uh, movement into the occupied territories happens during their daily commute for work or to go shopping or to go on tourist attractions and hikes. The green line has only been a barrier for Palestinians uh, who are restricted from movement into the other direction. And even that, um, for more than a decade now, the green line has been porous for Palestinians. Many Palestinians go into uh, 48, uh, into Israel, without uh, uh, the, the permits that are required, which suggests that the idea that the green line and, and the barrier is put in place for security is nonsensical. Uh, it's actually put in place for demographic engineering to maintain a Jewish majority state in 48, while Israel controls the entirety of the territories from the river to the sea. So in that context, when we then sort of understand that we are living in a very, uh, as Palestinians, under a very violent regime daily, uh, and that regime is uh, daily also trying to restrict our freedom of movement, one must be surprised uh, that there aren't more attacks against uh, uh, Israeli, Israelis in uh, 48. Uh, regardless of what one thinks about uh, the, the moral or ethical or even strategic uh, uh, reality of these attacks, uh, the fact is that this is a violent regime that's very violently oppressed Palestinians and uh, that uh, resistance to that oppression is a legal right and a legal uh, duty. Um, 
But then what does that mean for what you talked about, which is that uh, unarmed or peaceful resistance gets marginalized? And this is also something that we need to understand. This uh, peaceful resistance is marginalized by design. Uh, you're sitting in the US where there are active legislation being put forward in order to silence all forms of peaceful resistance, including sanctions, including boycotts, including any form of uh, organizing for Palestinian rights at exactly the same time that the US is also actively putting forward uh, sanctions against uh, Russia for what it views as, uh, as an illegal occupation of the Ukraine. And so the fact that Palestinians, as Yara said, are, are broken down away from collective mobilization into individuals and away from peaceful protests into other forms of protest is uh, an outcome of measures that Israel is taking and, and its allies are taking to restrict all forms of um, uh, all forms of protest or resistance that are uh, uh, peaceful. Uh, so I think we need to understand these attacks that are happening against Israeli uh, Jewish citizens within, within that context. Thank you. I think that's a hugely important clarification. And I mean, especially right now for folks who are watching the, the sort of cycle in the news, which talks about a, a, a surge in violence or an escalation, it, it, it is striking the extent to which it is seen as once the violence is present in the lives of Israeli citizens, then there's violence. And when it is not present in the lives of Israeli citizens, it's considered quiet and peaceful and not worthy of headlines. Um, that 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 paradigm is 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 one of the causes of the problems we have today. Tara, I wanna I wanna stick with you here and and sort of take a step back, sort of big picture view, and it, it covers a lot of what we've already talked about, but sort of pulling it together. It seems like there's there's three different national programs. I want to put quote unquote national programs for the Palestinians right now being pursued simultaneously at different levels. And one is the officialdom, P-A-P-L-O, which is about negotiations and security cooperation, other cooperation with Israel and steadfast commitment to the two-state framework and all of that. The second one is what you see with Hamas and selective you know, armed resistance, terrorism, whatever you want to call the different things. I, I will say that I think shooting rockets into civilian areas un, unguided is terrorism. Um, but that is another level of, of a, I think, frame for Palestinians in the minds of Palestinians is a national program. And the third is the civil society, which is BDS. It is all different kinds of ad hoc mobilizations like we're seeing in Jerusalem and Gaza and actually around the world. But are any of these part of a coherent national strategy? Um, is there is there any what what is the ability of people to organize um, to pull these threads together to prioritize one thread over another? The, it doesn't seem like the PAPLO thread has all that much credibility, but it is the one that certainly gets the most um, the most um, prestige. Um, and how important is it that there be a national strategy for overcoming the current fragmentation? Um, and 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 how would that come about? Who would be in charge of for overseeing it and 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 sort of catalyzing it? Thank you, Lara. It's a it's a very important question. 
Now, the PLO, which is the, the sole official representative of the Palestinian people, is arguably the body that historically was meant to represent uh, all of the Palestinian people in their entirety and to put forward a national liberation strategy that brings in factions uh, uh, outside uh, the, the sort of all the, the political factions that are working in the Palestinian space. Over the course of uh, three decades of peacemaking, specifically the Oslo period, the PLO has been completely subsumed into the Palestinian Authority. And we've already talked about the role the Palestinian Authority plays. It's not a political leadership that's committed to liberation. It's a political leadership that is committed to maintaining the status quo. In that, form, in that uh, transformation over the past three decades, uh, there has been the demise of uh, any kind of institutional national body uh, that is able to speak on behalf of all the Palestinians and to represent all the Palestinians. So the outcome is the reality that you just described, which is that there are different uh, factions and different uh, political leaderships uh, with different ambitions and agendas being put forward. Now, I think we're, as I said at the beginning, transitioning out of these three decades. We're transitioning into the next period of whatever form or phase that Palestinian struggle for liberation will take. In some ways, it's actually at a turn to a period, uh, to a historic period of uh, that was held on too tightly by the Palestinian leadership, by the PLO, which is that historic Palestine cannot be divided and that uh, we need to uh, work and function as an anti-colonial movement for a decolonized Palestine from the river to the sea. In some ways, the Palestinians are moving back to that discourse and back to that language, uh, except that obviously we're not living in the 70s and 80s anymore. So the big challenge is how do we think about decolonization in the 21st century? And what does dismantling Israeli apartheid mean today as versus uh, in, in the 70s and 80s? So I think the task for Palestinians is immense. And at the moment, I don't think that there is a single national vision that is bringing all of these um, different uh, factions and different powers and different centers of gravity together. But what I will say is that, as Lana said, a lot of that work is groundwork, is behind the scenes work, is building the infrastructure, and that's happening. It's happening daily. I mean, we're thinking about 2021 being the year that international organizations come out with designations of Israel as an apartheid regime. Uh, Palestinian advocacy on this started in the early 2000s, and Palestinians have designated Israel as an Israeli, as an apartheid state in the 60s, before the occupation had even begun. So the groundwork is there. We see it in the mobilization. The unity intifada is just a symptom of the fact that this groundwork is happening. And I do think that out of this, out of this investment of time and energy and resources and organizing and mobilization, a national strategy will evolve. Uh, and will come to the fore. It, it just, it, we have to wait and see what form it takes. The one other thing I want to say on this idea of the national strategy is that for a national, for a, a liberation movement to be successful, it has to be diverse. By default, it has to be able to bring together different constituencies, different religions and different races and different genders and different classes, they all of the different constituencies must mobilize together around a single unit a vision of liberation. So the fact that there are diverse political agendas or ideologies uh, in its own 
uh, right is not a bad thing. I think every liberation movement has to be diverse. It's just being able to create that thread or that narrative after we move out of this Oslo paradigm to understanding what that vision of liberation actually looks like. Thanks, Tarek. That's a perfect segue to my next question, uh, which I wanted to put to, to Lana. Um, but before I do, just a quick clarification for our audience members who may not be familiar with, uh, with the terminology. Uh, references to 48 Palestinians and 1948 Palestinians is a reference to Palestinian citizens of Israel as distinct from 1967 Palestinians in, in the occupied territory. So I just wanted to clarify that for audience members who may not be familiar with um, the, the terms. Um, so Lana, closely related to, to the question of a national strategy is the issue of political leadership. Uh, grassroots activism is one thing, um, but at least you know, from my standpoint, if, if the Arab Spring taught us anything at all, um, it's that popular mobilization alone is not enough to bring about real, uh, real uh, political change um, and that you need some form of coherent political leadership, both as, as Tarek pointed out in kind of ideological terms, um, you know, people need to, to be able to articulate clearly uh, the aims and goals and vision of, of the national movement, but also coherence in organizational terms, um, right? I mean, this was something that was particularly prominent in, in the first uh, intifada. Um, so how, how do you bring about, you know, if we have this break between Palestinian civil society and, and uh, you know, uh, ordinary Palestinians on one hand and their political leaders, whether we're talking about the PA or Hamas, um, how do we bring about this kind of defragmentation or how do we connect the, the you know, grassroots mobilization to, to the political? Um, and, and how do you bring about that kind of unified political leadership? That's really a good question. I'm not sure, um, I'm not sure I have a good answer for it, but um, look, I think you're touching on a really sensitive issue. Um, it's not a secret that Palestinian uh, uh, leadership, in terms of Palestinian leadership, we are in a very deep crisis. I think it is one of the most significant crises in leadership um, we have seen in decades. Um, we are facing leadership uh, that is for the first time um, is complicit in our own oppression. Um, and this is not something we can underestimate. And this is a leadership that is recognized internationally as the leadership. It is the leadership that is, uh, uh, um, you know, being supported uh, by the United States, uh, European countries, um, and recognized uh, globally as the leadership at the same time that it does not enjoy um, and does not have legitimacy among Palestinians in Palestine, uh, and again, Palestinians in the Shatat, in the diaspora. Um, and I think this is significant. What we are seeing is leadership that is being backed up with uh, uh, political um, uh, power, um, and uh, that has really invested interests um, in 
settler colonialism. The benefit is is enormous. Um, on the other hand, we're seeing on the other hand, we're seeing mobilization, grassroots mobilization all across Palestine. The leadership is there all the time. There is a leadership. Uh, and, and we can identify this leadership. Yes, it is civil society mobilization, but it is bringing a new leadership, new Palestinian leadership. What we actually have is the obstacle of how do we get rid of our formal leadership and bring new, new leadership uh, um, into uh, you know, positions of power and here I'm not necessarily talking about formal positions of power, but I'm talking about true leadership that represents the will of the people. And this is, this is the real crisis that we are facing. Um, and this is why it goes back to your previous question. This is why Palestinians are fighting two battles at the same time. There is a, a, a struggle against their leadership and a struggle, an anti-colonial struggle. This is why they're connected. And as long as the formal leadership is, you know, backed up by real uh, 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 power that is globally uh, 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 backed up and supported in its oppression of Palestinians, it's the real obstacle for Palestinian liberation, for new Palestinian leadership to emerge. The leadership is absolutely there, but it is tied to our, our ability uh, to get rid of the current leadership. And really, it, we're seeing how irrelevant this leadership is. And we were talking, Tariq was talking about leadership that represents all people and gender, ethnicity, and, and it is there on the grassroots where it doesn't exist is at the formal level where we are seeing kind of a masculine, toxic, uh, 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 semi-nationalist or, you know, speaking in nationalist voice, but actually a very uh, regressive uh, leadership. Um, so the hope is Palestinians are fighting the two battles in order to be able uh, um, to leverage this new leadership into real political program that they can uh, struggle against uh, globally. And they are leveraging this program, but we need the obstacle to go away. And that is the formal political leadership. Thank you. And Yara, I want to pick up the same thread with you. I, I had a conversation yesterday with um, with Dalia Hatuka about current events, and we were talking about the recent local elections that were held in the West Bank and the prevalence of um, candidates who chose to run as independents in, in what seems sort of as either repudiation of the traditional political lines of authority or recognition that those, those, those associations maybe aren't popular and aren't a good way to, to gain credibility and popularity. So that just seems relevant to me to this conversation, what these obstacles are and how, how people sort of get around them. I'm curious what your thoughts are 
adding to what we've heard already about the obstacles to a coherent policy national movement, internal and external emerging, but also your thoughts as, as I think one of the, the sharpest observers I know of the Palestinian and global political scene as it relates to the Palestinians. What do you see as the most effective ways that Palestinians can or are overcoming them? So there are so many obstacles to Palestinians taking part in any kind of political process across colonized Palestine. If we look for a moment just at the 67 territories, the Israeli regime uh, disrupts Palestinian political organizing for, through all different kinds of mechanisms, mainly for its, its military regime. Um, there are various Israeli military orders which prevents Palestinians um, even meeting for political meetings. A meeting of more than 10 Palestinians can be considered um, a political gathering and, and, and can land you in jail. And that brings me on to the next mechanism, Israel's carceral regime, which is perhaps the most effective way at disrupting Palestinian political organizing. At the moment, there are thousands of Palestinian um, prisoners political prisoners who are rotting in Israeli jails um, and they some of them have convictions of a couple of years some have a couple of decades and 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 even more um, and you know as we all know Israel can hold Palestinians um, under different um, uh, different conditions, legal conditions, including uh, administrative detention, which means that they can uh, hold people without uh, without trial for, for lengthy periods of time. And just that, uh, that 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 risk of going to prison, you know, the cost of being politically active, of taking part in any kind of political activities, not just in the 67 territories, but across uh, colonized Palestine, the risks are incredibly high. The costs um, for many people don't unfortunately seem worth it because there is also limited return um, at the moment to that kind of political organizing unless you take part in the sort of the formal leadership that, that Lana talked about or the the, the Palestinian uh, political institutions um, which are not only given the okay by the Israeli regime but their existence is premised on cooperation with the Israeli regime. Um, so this is the only safe space that Palestinians can really uh, feel comfortable in to take part in politics. And yet it's a space which is de deeply collaborative uh, with the Israeli um, regime. And its existence is premised on that, that collaboration. Um, so being political in Palestine is not an easy feat by by any means, and it's in and the design of such a system is 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 really uh, phenomenal. Some of the brightest, youngest um, uh, Palestinian leaders are, are currently in jail, um, and and often their crimes are for being affiliated with with different leftist groups uh, or, or or different uh, leftist um, uh, unions, etc. So the the elections, I think, were uh, you know, I think they, they the recent municipal elections were told us a lot of things about um, um, Palestinians in the West Bank. The the turnout for the municipal elections was fifty three percent, which sounds low, but also I think globally it's not particularly off trend. Uh, I think local elections tends to be around sixty percent. Um, but this. I'm glad you mentioned the the 
the fact that many people ran under independentness, I think it tells us several things. I think uh, one of the things it tells us is that Palestinians are finding creative ways to uh, to be politically active. We know that certain affiliations can land you in jail. If you run on the list of a leftist party, you could easily the next day find yourself in jail. And indeed, the Israeli regime did arrest uh, 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 candidates from this, including um, the, the mayor of Libire. He was elected and, and he won, uh, and he won whilst he was in jail. Um, so, you know, that was one way in which uh, Palestinians sort of bypassed that, that risk. Um, but also, of course, you know, there is a fatigue of political parties in the West Bank, you know, increasingly so. Um, and I and I think the re, the existence of those independent lists uh, explains um, or rather reflects that that fatigue. So there are many ways that, that that Palestinians are trying to overcome these these obstacles, and and of course many Palestinians are also willing to take those risks, um, you know, just to be politically active. Um, but I think the the key point is that the the current Palestinian institutional. Um, um, systems don't allow for any kind of, you know, serious challenge to the Israeli regime because their existence is is, is premised on uh, on Israel's existence. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Yara. Tarek, I want to um, come to you and and ask about the the internal Palestinian political situation. Um, as we all know. Palestinians have had this split between Hamas and Fatah for since 2007, um, since Hamas took control of the Gaza Strip and the PA operates in parts of the West Bank. Um, at the same time, we've seen in the last decade or so about a dozen um, different reconciliation agreements, most of you know, none of which have really been fully implemented. The most recent one being in September 2020. Uh, following the, the Arab normalization deals. Um, for better or worse, Hamas and Fatah are still the dominant political forces uh, in Palestine. Uh, we haven't seen, um, you know, even these the smaller uh, parties have sort of waned in their in their significance, and we haven't seen, you know, a the emergence of a of a credible third third party. Um, how important is uh, reconciliation uh, between these two warring Palestinian factions? Um, is, it, is it a necessary component of kind of putting the Palestinian uh, polity back together? Or is it simply time to bypass both of them and, and move on? I think the answer to the question is both. So I think that the bypassing of the factions is happening already. And as, as Yara just talked about, Palestinians are engaging politically uh, in ways that are, that are non-factional, whether they are uh, through running in municipal elections as independents, or they are uh, politicizing civil society more actively, or in their organizing both in Palestine and internationally. So I do think that the power that the factions have, uh, at least uh, uh, the, their recognition as official political leaderships for most Palestinians has, has ceased to be the case. I think they still have power uh, because uh, for many, uh, particularly those 
living in either the Gaza Strip or the West Bank, uh, excluding East Jerusalem. The, uh, the professional realities they have, the economic realities, they might be able to get family affiliations, tribal affiliations, all of those kinds of social networks are also informed by their political factional affiliation. So I think that there might, there might be a way that Palestinians uh, still revolve around the factions, while also recognizing that the factions in terms of political power for most Palestinians have been a huge letdown and, and are not necessarily uh, where the future political liberation will come. So having said that, uh, so just to say, there is the, the, the political organizing happening that's non-factional. But having said that, I do think reconciliation ultimately is hugely important. Uh, back to the point that I uh, uh, closed my last intervention in, which is that for a national liberation movement to succeed, it has to bring together all the different political powers. It has to bring together all the different facets of the people seeking liberation. So there has to be an inclusion in that liberation structure of all the factions, including, I imagine, uh, Hamas and Fatah, ultimately. The problem is that Hamas and Fatah today are seeking reconciliation within the body of the Palestinian Authority, which is, as, as we spoke about, uh, a body that is operating under uh, Israeli apartheid. They're not seeking reconciliation in the PLO or the broader body that would ultimately be speaking on behalf of all the Palestinians. Uh, Fatah is approaching all reconciliation agreements as a zero-sum game, which is essentially that they would want uh, Hamas's acquiescence uh, to their political agenda. And by the way, that agenda, Fatah's agenda, is one that's supported by the international community and by the quartet, that uh, Hamas can never be a part of the PLO. Uh, so that's already, that kind of unity is already sort of killed before it achieves anything. And Hamas, for its part, is unwilling to concede its control over the Gaza Strip uh, in any kind of future reconciliation. So it, both factions are locked in a zero-sum game. And they don't see how that, without some major change on the political scene, uh, either in the West Bank or Gaza, how that is going to, to shift. Uh, you may be aware that reconciliation talks were started again this January in Algeria, uh, and that might be a sort of, that might uh, create a different dynamic between the factions, but I'm quite pessimistic. I think that they're still locked in their uh, in their respective positions. So I think that ultimately reconciliation is hugely important, but in the meantime, I think political organizing is happening, as Yara said, despite these factions. Thank you, Tara. And Yara, I want to come back to you and pick up on that same thread. And just looking back at the history of the PLO, and especially in the 70s and the 80s, I mean, it, it's really a remarkable feat that was accomplished there. Um, you know, Palestinians were able to forge um, a unitary political structure, and they were able to do this while the PLO was not democratic and was lacking in sovereignty or territorial base. And yet it was viewed as, and it was genuinely inclusive and representative. So, and, and by the way, this is something that other movements in exile like the Syrian and Libyan opposition movements have failed to do. Um, so that's clearly not the case for the PLO today. So in, in terms of remedying that, what, I mean, what is needed to, to reestablish a genuinely inclusive and representative Palestinian leadership, one that is coherent? Um, is it really a matter of moving ahead with reconciliation and elections, which of course doesn't 
really deal with Palestinians who aren't in the territories? Um, are there deeper reforms that have to be enacted first within the PLO? And there's an entire controversy over how the PLO itself is functioning with Abbas as the leader. Um, and, and is it a question of whether the PLO actually can even be salvaged or whether the Palestinian movement um, is going to, in this era, be looking to somehow replace it? I think that's that's a really excellent question. I think it, it does require us to think about the PLO and what it looked like, and it's when it was first founded. Um, the, it was founded in, in the late 60s, um, and when it was founded, it wasn't particularly um, a representative. There was a there was an absence of refugees, absence of, of, of people from working class backgrounds, and of course, as always, very uh, limited amount of uh, women female representation. Um, and this was, you know, a point of discontent at the time, especially among uh, uh, among the youth and among students. Um, and it led to um, a change. Uh, it led to there was a consensus that was achieved uh, that was reached by guerrilla groups who had a significant uh, popular and grassroots legitimacy. Um, uh, and there was essentially a political takeover that at the time was led by um, Yasser Arafat, who was elected as, as chairman in, in, in 1969. Um, and, and this was supported by many other of the, uh, of the guerrilla groups at the time. Now, of course, we have to be careful not to romanticize this period, but I do think it would be fair to say that we did see at that moment um, political pluralism and attempts to incorporate not just um, guerrilla groups and, and various political parties, but also unions and, and other collectives. Uh, and there was an initial consensus that was reached that this is, you know, that the liberation, the Palestinian liberation movement um, should take on uh, um, a revolutionary arms struggle that was free of the, the, the control of the Arab states. Um, now this, over time, this collective consensus was, was weakened, especially because of Yasser Arafat's increasing authoritarianism, the way that he appointed uh, representatives, um, and also because of the, the over-representation of, of diaspora elites in, in the PLO. Now, if we fast forward a little bit from that moment to the first intifada in period, we saw a different kind of leadership emerge. We saw a leadership emerge um, not not from the PLO. The PLO was uh, at the beginning left out of this collective organizing, but this was a leadership that emerged from the streets of Palestine. Uh, unions, different student groups, collectives, uh, political factions all formed uh, this coalition called the, the Unified National Leadership of the Uprising. And decisions were, were made within this body and they had a rotating uh, leadership system. Now, of course, there were all kinds of problems within that system. Um, but what it demonstrated is that there could be a form of revolutionary leadership and consensus achieved outside of the sort of the usual uh, uh, ideas about how leaderships uh, come about through elections, etc. This uprising was centered on the notion of people's power. So it was a form of popular and revolutionary consensus. And I think it's important to, to think about that. And, and there's a reason that I mentioned those particular moments of, of collective consensus, because I, I think this is what a new Palestinian leadership should be based on, especially if we think in more nuanced ways about what democracy and leadership can be under uh, occupation, under, under, under colonization. Do we really think 
that representative and democratic processes can happen when um, Israel arrests political actors from opposition parties it doesn't like, when the, the current Palestinian Authority assassinates political opponents it doesn't like. Um, so I think it, 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 it requires us to think about um, a different kind of legitimacy, not one that is necessarily based uh, or comes from the, the, the election process. And, and we do have precedents of that kind of uh, consensus building, albeit, um, you know, with all the kind of issues that, that, that those processes face. And at this point, I don't think that the PLO can be salvaged. And I think it's a difficult um, it's a difficult thing for many Palestinians to, to conclude because, of course, the PLO has such symbolic importance for Palestinians, especially for Palestinians in exile in the diaspora, where, you know, the PLO still remains that sort of connected, that sort of institution with, from, through which they connect to Palestine. Um, you know, the PLO still has representatives across the world. And so it's a it's a it's a difficult thing to to cut ties with. But I think it's important to to realize that the PLO at the time served its purpose and it did uh it did things that were you know for its time quite phenomenal uh by creating a leadership in exile. Um but unfortunately it's it's morphed into into something that will never ever uh, achieve Palestinian liberation and so it will never you know achieve its namesake uh, and so for that reason I think you know it's important that that Palestinians think beyond the PLO and 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 not waste energies about you know reform and resalvaging something uh, that can't be salvaged. Thanks Yara. Uh, Lana I want to come back to you and and you'll have to have the the last word as we're approaching our um, uh, we're running out of time. Um, so looking beyond the, the domestic arena, all liberation struggles uh, in one form or another need external support uh, to survive and, and to succeed. In the past, the Palestinians have traditionally relied on the overwhelming support, not just of Arab states who provided material and political um, as well as moral support, but, but also from the Arab publics. Uh, you know, it was very common for Palestinian leaders like Yasser Arafat to appeal directly to Arab publics uh, when they felt that Arab governments weren't doing enough for, for the Palestinian issue. Today, the picture has changed. Obviously, we've seen a number of rec uh, normalization agreements between Israel uh, and, and various Arab states. Um, just recently, we, we, we had this uh, uh, unprecedented summit uh, held in, in Israel um, in which a, a number of, of, of Arab states uh, participated. Um, at the same time, we've seen uh, uh, solidarity movements for Palestinian rights grow in uh, the, in North America and Europe and, and other uh, parts of the West. So are we seeing a kind of realignment where, you know, traditional uh, Arab support is waning, but, but, but support from other constituencies, particularly in the West, uh, is growing? Um, what does that shift mean? Um, is, it, is it important uh, that Palestinians um, do or don't have uh, Arab support in, in going forward. I think that in, in relation to the Arab world and going back to Yara here, um, when the PLO was, was founded, it was founded uh, precisely to try and get a Palestinian voice 
um, and try to set a Palestinian agenda uh, that is uh, in connection, but also independent uh, from Arab uh, uh, leadership uh, broadly. Um, and the reason is, and the reason is that the relationship between um, Pal Palestinians and the Arab world has, or Arab regimes, have always been complex. Um, it's it's not new. What we're seeing new is really the the big normalization agreements uh, that are happening are a massive change in the status quo. Um, but it's also important to remember to differentiate between the Arab regimes and the Arab publics. Palestine still enjoys uh, uh, wide support among Arab publics. When Bahrain went into normalization agreement with Israel, um, there has been uh, uh, Bahrainis coming out to condemn their own government for taking this uh, step. So I think Palestinians still enjoy that public support. Um, what they don't enjoy is the support of Arab countries in terms of political leadership. And that is something that is also happening on the global stage more broadly. So if in the 60s and 70s, um, uh, Palestinians through the PLO had uh, the support of uh, third world countries and were part of the third world liberation projects uh, and enjoyed uh, support both of governments um, and of the uh, third world uh, uh, publics. This is today what we are seeing is that Palestinians are mostly isolated at the level of uh, polit formal political support and at the level of allies from different countries. We see a massive decrease in that type of support, but we are seeing an increase in civil society support for Palestinians. The global uh, uh, Palestine solidarity movement is growing significantly, uh, not only in the Arab world and in the uh, third world, but also in the West. And that is a massive change. And that again, goes in line also with what Palestinians are facing within Palestine, in historic Palestine, where again, we have the tension between uh, a grassroots civil society mobilization, and between polit formal political leadership. Um, so we are strong at the level of civil society mobilization, whether it is in historic Palestine and globally. The question is when governments and when formal international political community is going to catch up with uh, uh, civil society and change its course on uh, uh, on the question of Palestine. And this is the big challenge that we are facing uh, um, as Palestinians for Palestinian liberation. Um, but again, we are strong on the civil society and that is posing a very significant challenge to the international community. And as Tarek said, 
the determination that Israel is an apartheid state by massive international uh, organizations and the human rights community is only a testament as to how civil society can impact broader processes. So I wouldn't underestimate uh, that power that we do wield. Um, and I think eventually the international community at a more formal level will have to catch up with what civil society is demanding. Thank you, Lana. And that's actually a perfect place to end this. Um, you know, the series that this is the final installment of an eight part series, which uh, one, of, one of the main functions of that series has been to bring to an audience that maybe doesn't hear very often from Palestinian civil society, Palestinian, you know, a different generation of intellectuals, people like yourselves, to bring your voices to them. Um, which I think is part of exactly what you're talking about, really challenging the international community to think more broadly and make space for maybe different ideas and different voices. Um, we hope that this, this series has contributed to, to making that space and, and giving a platform for what are, we believe, really important ideas and important voices, including all of yours. On behalf of the Middle East Institute and the Foundation for Middle East Peace, I want to thank our participants, uh, Yara, Tara, and, and Lana, and especially Lana, who I should say is joining us from the wee hours of tomorrow morning from Australia. Thank you so much for that. Thanks to everyone who joined us for this webinar and especially those who submitted questions. We hope you enjoyed today's sessions. This does wrap up the briefing series. If you missed any of these sessions or if you didn't miss them but want to access the video or resources from ones again that you've seen already, that's awesome. We encourage you to do so and you can find all of that on the FMEP and MEI websites. And with that, we will end this session. Thank you very much.